contracting model while we're working with these teams. Wait, like, what have you tried thus far? Um, the, I mean, so things that we've tried so far is just saying, hey, you've been using this for three weeks. How much have you improved? You know, how much do you value that? And that's where we're at right now. So the next layer is, so how long do we continue to let, allow them to use it for free? And two, you know, okay, you got to pay us now uh, to continue using the product. Yeah, the main thing is just test, 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 test. I don't think either one of us is going to have like some like magical thing yeah. to say. Yeah. Um, the you know and that sort of stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it seems like there's two schools of thought. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is the lean startup practices, and probably everyone here has heard about the lean startup. But you know, you pick a hypothesis, you test, 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 test. You have to test the you know, the, the problem that you're solving, the solution that you're solving against the, the customer segment that you're working with. Mm -hmm. That's one school of thought. Then um, another school of thought is you just swipe the iPhone in front of a crowd and see what happens, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, much harder to do, much harder to do since you're doing it. It sounds like the, the first lean start practice would be what I would actually have to do. Yes, and, but, and get really aggressive about your metrics. Okay. And I can't say that I'm any perfectionist at that, or that I, I, I don't think there really is a set of experts in the world that do that, but it's a practice you have to get to. What do you mean by metrics as far as Metrics as an example. So um, uh, one of my favorite sayings is nothing happens till someone sells something. Yes, okay. So how many swings to the fact that you actually said, hey, you know, I'm now gonna take this, uh, this thing called a, the puppy dog clothes. Yeah. I'm gonna hand it to them whether it's freemium or whatever it is, now I'm gonna take it away from them and see what happens. Okay. Right? And it's like, you gotta, and that, a metric would be, does he make for the puppy back? Okay. Not, right? Yeah, and I, I think that for you, when you're asking, how do I know if I should start charging for it or not? Yes. As you're, as you're interviewing them or surveying them and getting feedback, I think the question I'd ask is, at some level, like, how upset would you be if this disappeared tomorrow? And give them a scale of one to 10 or ask them what, you know, or what would you do if, you know, if this tool disappeared tomorrow? And when they start answering, like I'd be really upset, like I don't know what I'd do, or like I'd go make you, you know, like I'd make you give it back to me, you know, like then that's the time at some level to start charging for it. Okay. Um, but you want to do that as soon as possible. If you know, usually it's better to skip giving away for free if you can. Okay. Because if your value prop's strong, mm -hmm. then they should want to go pay for it just on the, the value of what it's done to you. Okay. Um, or not, not always, but but if you. That, that's a lot better. And a lot of times it will. Usually I find a lot of entrepreneurs are a little too hard on themselves. They think like, oh, no one's going to give me a try or nobody would pay for this until it's perfect or until it's done. And actually, if you're solving a really important problem, a lot of people will pay you in advance on just on the hopes that you'll get it done okay. uh, because they because they because you're solving something really important. Okay. Thank you. I, I got lucky in that a lot of times the, the work that I was doing was getting paid on the option. And one of the bootstrapping strategies that I use is paid on the option that the product might work. And if it works, like for the early adopters that are truly early majority, I mean, early adopters, not early majority customers, mm -hmm. um, you know, they will pay. Mm. And they'll pay when you show them a PowerPoint presentation or a keynote presentation. Okay. If you can find, and there's something about selling to people who love you versus like you and, and having the, the strength to walk away from the people who are liking you right now. Okay, great. What's another? Uh, just to piggyback off that, um, how do you know if the price is right when you first start selling? And 
in that case, the price is not right, if you need to go, let's say, higher, um, how do you then take those current customers and transition, or can you, um, and then kind of restructure that pricing model? Pricing is super hard. It's another kind of art, not a science. So it's, you know, it's hard to be like, well, now I know my price is right, you know, and you know, the, the, I'm exactly at the right crossing part of the demand curve, but you know, I'm maximizing my profit. Or, um, you just usually don't have that much information, so you have to you know, constantly be testing different things. And once you get it right, it might change. Um, but specifically, how do you deal with raising your price? That's one where, where, where I mean, we've, I've seen that a lot. And typically, what will happen is you, you don't think of it like you have to change the prices on all the customers at once. And a lot of times, you want to test your pricing on new customers, not old customers, because you have nothing to lose at some level with them. And so say you wanted to raise your prices, Usually what you would do is kind of grandfather all your old customers in. You leave them at the old prices. And you just start the new customers signing at the higher price. And you may not be able to do that forever, uh, but, but as a, while you're figuring things out, that's an easy way to not have to deal with it and not have to change it on them and, and just try out different prices on different people. And for those people who, let's say a grandfather person or a new person, if there's a price change and they talk to each other, um, how do you handle, I mean, do you, are you just up front with your clients and you just say, look, price adjustment happens. Yeah, I mean, I would tell exactly the truth. I'd be like, oh yeah, they were one of our first customers that signed up and they got a really great price and so they got locked in. You should lock your price in right now too. Yeah, I think it can be transparent like that, right? Yeah. There's something about authenticity and just saying, hey, you know, thank you for the investment. You took a risk on me. That's why you've got, you know, 30% off or 50% off or whatever it is. And, and you would actually say, you could say that in some of your copy depending on what, you know, the people selling to. The other side is packaging. How can you package the deal where, you know, you find someone else in this room who's got something similar and you say, okay, we're going to actually, you know, double it in that 30 by matching up with some unique offer that you're just testing. That's another way of getting away with it as well. Where the package is, it's, it's identifiable that there's something different about what you're doing versus what the previous offer was. And there's always a way of doing that. There's always a, and like in this room, certainly there's someone in your market alone. Not that it's the right partnership, but it, there's always a package that's possible. What's a FinTech community like here? I'm kind of looking for somebody to do validation and get an idea I have, and also if possible, you know, help me or invest it. So who was the first party? FinTech, what is that community FinTech. like here? There's a bunch of blockchain stuff that's happening in Bitcoin, and I know a little bit more about that. But you might, and historically, I know a bunch about fintech, but I can't tell you that I've got my finger on the on the pulse of fintech. So, is there some person here I can reach out to? Yeah, I think I, look, I think fintech is it's not like Austin some massive fintech hub, and there's not like there's nothing going on. Like Austin has a lot of things going on, and a little bit of everything, and fintech's one of those things. There's some big companies swirling around that are in the fintech space that have certainly have interest in that. And then a number of different startups, I think on the more on the consumer side typically, uh, and then kind of Bitcoin blockchain stuff that like Kevin was saying. So what, what, what segment of fintech are you doing? More like trading, trading application. Yeah. There is a bunch of people that are doing auto trading kind of um, type of. I'm more of predictive models. Yeah, I've, I've, I can't tell you that I have expertise in that. There's one company that just joined us out here called Trade Jester, and they're like an app for kind of you're teaching people to trade their first trades. Um, there's been a number of things that kind of like personal finance, man, kind of apps to help 
most basic thing would be go to meetup.com, look for FinTech. And I mean, if, if, like if I was to go, there's a handful of people I'd probably call up, but the, the simplest is just to see what kind of noise you see on the, on the meetups. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, just to answer the question, I run a FinTech meetup here called FinTech Austin. Oh, it is. <laughs> um, if you guys are interested in any of you guys, it's the biggest meetup in Austin, hands down. We have our first event in the first floor space here on May 10th, and we have quarterly uh, speaking. So we have right now around 325 RSVPs wow. to the event. So that's awesome. That's probably Do you know who Worley is? I've heard the name. William Hurley. Worley. Okay. Uh, he's kind of uh, another iconic Austin. So just just so if you if you are just in the fintech, okay, I'm bringing it out there. I'll, awesome, I'll talk to you there. That's how you do it. <laughs> yeah, the answers in this room. You guys should really feel. Um, one of the reasons to be in Austin, especially for the people that are here for the very first time, or you think you're exploring Austin, the number one reason, the reason I kept on coming back. I lived in nine different cities during my career. The reason I kept on coming back to Austin. I went to college here, but the reason I kept on coming back um, from. Uh, from a business side, it's just the collaboration ethic here beats everywhere else in the country, I think, at least, in my experience. Now I'm biased because you know, I started my first company here in 94, but um, but I think that's the number one thing. So it should be very open, and I would expect that. And I hope that's one of the things we keep. Have you guys ever, um, or do you give a lot of advice to people that are stuck in the corporate world that just Stealing someone else's IP, and I'm not an attorney, so this is not a law of anything. 
I would rather disqualify someone kicking and screaming at the very beginning, unless I just know that they're an amazing, like I've already qualified them in for some other reason, right? You know, one of the people you saw on, on the screen as an example, there's some people there that get to work with, would actually, unless, unless you know someone like that, you should be disqualifying people in the most gentle, loving way possible, as fast as possible, um, versus trying to sell anyone on the idea. But another way of looking at that <laughs> is your co-founder's your first sales job. If you can't convince somebody else to quit their job and join you, right. then maybe you don't have a very good idea. <laughs> but, you know, there's, but, but then you gotta like, it's hard. I agree, I agree with Kevin's point too. Like, there's the, that was just, that was a little more just. An yeah, no, it's, play, play it's, play it's true on both sides. It's, it's, it's yeah. interesting that there's like a certain thing. The thing that I had to get over, and I see a lot of entrepreneurs have to deal with, especially the first time they're working on something, is in a job interview, we're supposed to like, oh, please, um, you know, work hard. And this, I don't know, I've screwed up a lot of times. I have a lot of scar tissue because of co-founders and business partners. So now I'm actually, like, I'll tell you the whole, most horrific story about my personality and what I've done, and blah, 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 and my and the way I might act in certain situations, just to see, just to see what happens. And it, it's actually, now things go much faster. Now it's a different point in my life, but still. Someone else has got to be building a business here that has something to up against. You guys shouldn't be shy about that. So, that's another question. So, as far as getting an investment, I mean, I guess you mentioned there's an angel network. And there's a fairly formal process to go through. Is that you talk about that a little bit? How length, lengthy it is, and kind of what people are looking for, the business plans, or revenue model, or whatever it is. So sure. Well, you should definitely come to the that the, specifically the sort of fundraising I talked about. Because we'll talk about it in a lot more detail. Uh, and the other, the, the other resource I'd send you to just, just right away is a blog post that I put up uh, at the beginning of the year. This basically was, it's called How to Raise a Half a Million Dollars in Austin in 2017. So it's kind of like trying, because this is a question that I get asked a lot, right? So what are the, where do you need to be, things like that. Um, the short story is, is fundraising always takes longer than you think it will. So a lot of people come in and think they're gonna raise money in like 30 days or something. Um, and it's even for very experienced entrepreneurs, it's usually a lot harder than they think it's going to be. And you need to understand that it's a competitive, that is a competitive marketplace. Like, it's not just about is your good idea a good idea, it's how does your idea compare to all the other ideas they could be investing in. And, and, uh, and these days, that means usually you need to have a very strong team. You need to have, like, people that, separate from everything else, someone, an external party person's going to look at it and go, oh, wow. you get funded, you're probably going to need to have some kind of a product built and people using it. And probably somebody paying for it, not necessarily, but probably. And then there's different kinds and levels of funding and businesses need different levels of funding. So that varies a lot. And those initial rounds, I mean, what do you, what do you only give up as far as, you know, the partnership? It's just, it's just you understand what kind of business you're building. If you're, most people that I talk to are trying to go build a business that they think they think is going to be a venture capital business is going to go raise traditional venture capital and end up raising you know tens of millions of dollars.
if that's what you're trying to do, then typically you're going to give up 10% um, of the company in a seat in a kind of friends and family round. And then in general, every round of funding, you're going to give up 20 to 30% of the company. And it, but, it, like, but not cumulatively, but like you'll give up 20% now, and then you'll give up 20% of that old thing. And then 20, so the, the port, it's actually getting smaller over time. Um, but it's typically 20 to 30 percent of the round of your company. So if you're raising three million dollars on a five million dollar pre-money, eight million dollar post, or if you're raising two million dollars on four and a half, you know, or something like that. Okay. The other question that, that I think is interesting to look at is where in the technology spectrum is it? Is this really early stage stuff? Um, so I have a reputation of being a bootstrapper in Austin, and I definitely am a fan of bootstrapping, you know, bootstrapping, pulling yourself up based on, building the business based on the customer money you take in. Um, most of my experience is building Scuffworks, you know, disruptive innovation for large organizations. And so um, what I hear out of that, and this is a little bit different, and you know, Josh, Capital Factory has definitely got a lot of the stuff on the investors and traditional financial investor. You should look at your strategic investors, depending, I don't know what type of trading you're doing in the, you know, you could have a thing that just because you have the algorithm, someone's gonna hand you a fistful full of dollars, right? And, you know, where that's how you lever it up on the very get-go. Um, the, the thing to be thinking about is how can you get to that traction as quickly as possible? I'm a maniac when it comes, or maniacal when it comes to getting traction. And the majority of my reason for that is most of the technology that I commercialized, it was the first time it saw the light of day. And no one was gonna invest in it. I was also in Austin, Texas, and the years passed, <coughs> Austin's so much cooler to get investment in than, than it was, especially when I started my first company and had really advanced database technology no one in town, you know, no one in town can make time of day for it. Um, there's definitely a lot more stuff happening, like magnitudes of 10 better. But you should still figure out how to get to traction. What's the traction story? And then if you do have something that really fundamentally shifts or disrupts, then I would look for strategic investors. And I would, you know, I'd connect a little bit to the angel investors or other seed investors if, if that's what you're looking for. But spend a lot more time on your strategic investors because you know corporations now are actually thinking that way much more than ever before. Speaking of bootstrapping and uh, you know trying to build up that momentum and the traction, what do you think about influencer marketing and utilizing that? Can you not hear me? Uh, no, I know. Actually, you know, most of my experience has been B two B. And so when I hear influencer marketing, I think more B2C in, you know, I, truth be told, I don't think I have it. I mean, in B2B, in the context of B2B, if you have influencer marketing, it's the number one thing, right, for taking a risk early on. On the technology, it's not what it is. It's like, who, who's uh, validated this year? <laughs> so I think that that's really powerful. If you're talking about B2C, though, I would actually probably point to Josh, because you probably just well, that's perfect. You guys have been giving yang and yang answers all night, so. Yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't, I, I don't have a lot for you. Like, yes, it's good, and I'm not sure what 
Uh, yeah, like with Instagram specifically and like how, how much momentum that's building with these micro-influencers, people that aren't huge, but you can actually like build a business model around that. Do you see a lot of that changing either of your industries, whether for Capital Factory? Not at all? I see occasionally people figure out really clever ways to do that. Most people can't do that. Interesting. Like it does work, but like it's usually, that, that would be usually an exception of like somebody figured out like, wow, they figured out some really cool way to go get Yeah, I understand what he's talking about. 
the thing that I really want to get us over as a city is this, you know, looking at our feet syndrome about that, you know, we just don't have all the opportunities and stuff like that. And when, so when it, I'm going to push on the fact that it's a hypothetical. From a hypothetical, if you would just build a, a company and have a nice early exit, early exit to find around $30 million, you're not going to freaking care. There's a book called Early Exits by um, the guy's name is Basil something or other. And, but it's a beautiful book and it just talks about let's just build a couple of $10 million companies. The board doesn't have to get involved to write a $10 million check for you to go live on an island someplace. And so for all the people in Austin other than my friends, and I have a couple of friends that would, you know, if they listen to this would probably kick my ass and say, but blah, 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 venture capital is down 58%. Which, you know, the article in the paper just recently said it's down 58% in Austin. But the sad thing about that is... In one quarter. Yeah, in one quarter. Yeah, the sad thing about... It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It just means it's going to shift around, which I totally agree with. The sad thing about it is if we actually had more people who are just, like, doing 10 to 20 to 30 million, you know, exits, which you can do. And it's cool to see on, you know, your face on the cover of Fortune if you have a billion dollar exit, but the real thing that I think is interesting is these, these smaller exits that put more people with the hunger into our community. And that's what that's what's driving Austin right now. Now it kind of sucks that we don't have a Google and we don't have a Facebook and we don't have this, that, and the other thing. And, Except you know, they are both here. Yeah, they are both here and they have massive amounts of people. You know, Dell is our one really big recognizable unicorn it didn't produce a lot of entrepreneurs, which is sad. It produced a crap load of wealth, but it didn't produce entrepreneurs. And at least my come from is, I want to see more entrepreneurs that have a couple million, you know, at least a couple million dollars, maybe ten million dollars in the back pocket, because they become a force of nature because they have that hunger. They're not done, and and so start a company, have a fifteen million dollar exit, buy me a beer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the other side is just so money. Follows